So this evening, I would like uh, to look at uh, meditation, of course, and also uh, grasping, creative engagement. But first, I'll start with uh, some story. So the first story is about uh, when I was a nun in Korea. And so in Korea, when I was a nun, because uh, I lived in a monastery, uh, and generally the nuns and the monks were not in the same place, but because they were only, at the time, the only place where Westerners could be. So we could have a few Western nuns, and generally we lived separate from the monks in a little room. So sometimes we have five in that room. I mean, it was not a big room. Five where just like each of us could lie down on the floor. Uh, four, three, depending on was was around. And generally, I thought, if only they were not there, I could really meditate. <laughs> and so finally, the opportunity came. They all went somewhere else to practice. So here, I was three months on my own in that room. And I imagined, you know, I would be, you know, so happy and be able to meditate and no problem. And within two weeks, I realized it was not there. My problem was not them. It was me. Because <laughs> even without them, I still had thought and emotion and all kind of things. But here I was, meditating on my own, doing my 10 hours a day. And because I was on my own, it was easier to think, you know, like I would be sitting, what is this, what is this? And suddenly thinking, well, this is a bad meditation. I have lots of thought, I can't do the questioning. Maybe... I should do something more useful. Because obviously right now it's not working. And maybe I should do more, something more useful than sitting there and, you know, not being able to meditate properly. So one time, finally, you know, I was so fed up with the meditation, I decided, okay, I'm going to get up. Because I am on my own, I can do what I want. I'm going to get up and I'm going to read a Zen text. At least that will be useful, you know, beneficial. So I get up from my cushion, I sit against the wall, I open the text. And I can't read. I can't read the text. And then I realized that actually, although it looked like the meditation was not working, it was working. And that was my first inkling, that actually the way we judge our meditation often is misperceived. We have such a very strong idea about what is a good meditation. And that made me realize that actually, even sitting there, even being half distracted, I was still meditating. And it was still having an effect. 
And this happened again and again. I, I, I had that experience several times, which convinced me that we need to be careful of thinking the worth of the meditation is according to a certain idea of we have of the state we should be in when we meditate. And that's why nowadays, personally, I don't think it matters very much the state you are in when you meditate. Because I think what matters is that actually you sit, you walk, and you have that, you have that intention to do it. And time to time, you come back. And time to time, you question. And that actually, I think, is more powerful than we think. So I think the meditation is more about the cultivation of something than the effect of that something right here and there. Then later on, I had another experience which in a way convinced me even more of that. So I was uh, doing a, a retreat in a small nunnery because it enabled me to be with some, uh, a great nun. And also it enabled me to visit uh, a Zen master regularly that I admired. And so I would be, you know, meditating again 10 hours a day. And like you, uh, I had a work period. And my work period was cleaning the bathroom. And there it was a communal bathroom, Korean style, and so every day at 4 o'clock, I went to do my job, to clean the bathroom. And every day at 4 o'clock, there was a nun in the way she was cleaning herself. And so first I said, well, could not you come at another time? It would be better for both of us. She said, no, 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 I am chanting. I need to be pure before I go chanting. So I could not say anything to that. So every day, I would be upset. I would see her contact, oh, she's here again, and she's in a way, and I can't clean properly, and da, 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 da. And the rest of the time, I did not think about it. The rest of the time, I was trying to sit and question, what is this, what is this, what is this? But every day, four o'clock, ha, ah, she's here again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then it would be back, what is this, what is this, what is this? Four o'clock, <laughs> And it went on for two weeks like that. <laughs> and then, after two weeks, four o'clock, I go. And again, she's there. And it's totally fine. There is nothing. There is no upset, no anger, nothing. There is just her. She's there. Okay, I'll clean around her. And it was like that forever after, the time I was there. And what was interesting for me was that I did not spend my time sitting in meditation thinking, I am a terrible Buddhist, I must not be upset. I did not think about it. I just did the meditation. But it showed me that something happened. By just doing the meditation, slowly, slowly, something happened. And then finally one day, there was no grasping anymore. There was no, I want it that way. There was just, oh, that's the way 
It is. I can creatively engage with it. And so it was not me consciously forcing myself to do it. It just suddenly happened on its own. And it stayed that way thereafter. And again, it showed me that actually what happens with the meditation, when we apply ourselves, when we try to really, we try to anchor, we try to question, it doesn't mean that we anchor all the time. It doesn't mean that we're questioning all the time. But just the fact that we do it, we sit, we walk with that intention. And then that intention reminds us of doing it. That's what mindfulness is about. Sati, which comes from the early Pali text. Sati means partly to remember. So actually the intention to be aware, to question, to meditate, That's in a way what gives the power to the meditation. And this is what is going to remind you time to time. Oh, I am distracted. Let's go back. Oh, I'm a little sleepy. Let's try to be brighter. So it doesn't need that we're always questioning or always with the breath. But that we come back time to time. And that, just by itself, is actually very powerful. And that's what will happen, because, again, it's back to what I said before. That if you cultivate, if you do the anchoring, if you come back again and again, you dissolve the habit. You diminish their power. Then they can come back to their creative function. If you inquire... You question, in a way, you challenge your misperception of things being fixed, solid, more permanent than they are. And so I would see, in a way, the point of the meditation is not so much to experience special state. Because often I think that's what we do. We hear so much about awakening, about amazing meditative state, that often there is this focus that we sit to get an amazing meditative state. This, personally, I would say, is a byproduct of the meditation. It doesn't mean you cannot experience them. Yes, we can. But to me, that's not the point. I would say the point of the meditation is a cultivation of the concentration, of the inquiry, to some degree. And I would not say to such a great, as great a degree as we think we need, but to an enough degree that the intention is kept alive. And then, by just doing that, then there is a release. And then that release, each time we meditate, each time we walk, each time we are aware, each time we question, that it be when you're eating or when you're working or when you're resting or when you sit or walk here, that has this drip-drip, releasing effect. What I call the 
effect. And this is something often we can notice. I know it's a little subtle, but when we sit in meditation, even if we had a so-called bad meditation, at the end of it, it's like there is a little releasing. There is a little less tension in a way. There is something, a little degrasping. And so to me, that's why the meditation really, the path is really about. is about, in a way, moving from grasping, from sticking, from holding, to creatively engaging. And so this is what I want to talk about now, to, to see that, again, it doesn't mean that we can always be in the creative, engaged position. But I feel that what we're cultivating here helps us to kind of have more of a choice. Do I grasp or do I creatively engage? Or also as a signal. Because I think actually the meditation helps us also to recognize when do we grasp? How does it feel? And when are we creatively engaged? And how does it feel? So let me give you just a little um, example in terms of the signaling. To me, this is very important. Not to jump into non-grasping immediately in order to not grasp. We have to know how do we grasp? How does it feel? What does it provoke grasping? And the best way to show it is just by this little image. So let's say this is something precious to me. And it belongs to me. And so because it's precious and it belongs to me, then I hold on to it. And so if I do this, for any length of time, two things are going to happen. The first one is that I'm going to get a cramp in the arm. And this is actually a signal of grasping. When we feel tension, we can look, what is it I'm grasping at? This is a signal to just help us to notice that when we grasp, it generally brings tension in our body, in our mind, in our heart, in our relationship, whatever it might be. The second thing is that if I grasp at this, actually, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So I am stuck to what I'm grasping at. And this, I think, this process, I think, is very important to notice. That often we have this feeling, I cannot stop doing it. But we don't realize by actually doing it, it creates its own suffering, this grasping. And I would say that the meditation we do what we practice here is slowly, slowly, slowly de-grasping 
own grasping. So that then there can be freedom, there can be movement. And I think to me this is what we're doing here. This de-grasping, this opening our hand. So then there is no tension and also there is freedom. I can use it, I can live it. So let's look at this process of grasping and how it works. Because I think this is quite important. So you grasp. As soon as you grasp, together you identify. As soon as you grasp, there is I, me, mine. This is, this, they go together. The two go together. And then you solidify around what you grasp at. But then that makes you limit yourself to it. And then the last thing we do is we magnify what we're grasping at. And that's why I would say grasping is problematic. What is problematic is amplification, when it amplifies. Because when we grasp, Often we go in two directions, and sometimes they get compounded together. The first one is that we proliferate. And this is something you can really notice when you sit in meditation. You grasp at a thought, you grasp at a feeling, you grasp at a sensation, and generally you proliferate. It's always going to be like this. It's always like this before. It's kind of like you kind of, from one thought, one sensation, one feeling, which is you experience now, suddenly, you kind of just really expand. It's really kind of you proliferate. And then you go into abstraction. And then going into abstraction, you can, I mean, the proliferation can go like terrible. Let me show you a little one, uh, a funny little one. So you're waiting for somebody. And, you know, two o'clock, they're not here. You know, like if, you know, suddenly 7.30, Martin is not here. So 7.30, you think, hmm, weird, she's not here. Ten past seven, what's the matter with her, you know? She does not love us. You know, if she loved us, she would be here on time. You know, we matter. She would, you know, 7.20. Nobody loves us. Nobody cares for us. We stuck. 7.50. We hate the world. So you can you can take it personally, or you can think, "Ooh, what happened? You know, did she break a leg or had a heart attack or whatever?" So I mean, you can go in many different ways. You can go many different ways. So something happened. What do we do? Do we creatively engage with it, and we go and check? You know what's happening. Or do we sit there and we just 
proliferate, amplify, take it personally, and then shh, then connect it to, yeah, you know, last year was the same, you know, there was that other, they did not come, they did not care, you know, nobody cares, and then shh. You know, we can easily do that. So that's what I call proliferation. From one thing you just, kind of like this huge thing. The other one, which is very close to it, is exaggeration. That when we grasp, because we magnify, we amplify, we exaggerate. And again, exaggeration is abstraction. And by exaggerating, we generally make things much more difficult. And one way we exaggerate, for example, is when you say, I cannot stand it. This is interesting. I cannot stand one more minute of this. And I don't know if you have felt this sitting here. I cannot stand this. (laughs) So far it looks like all of you have been able to stand it. But it's very interesting that that moment where you kind of suddenly you exaggerate and you can't stand it anymore. Not one more second, one more millisecond, nanosecond. (laughs) And I remember when I was in Korea, my first retreat, I really could not stand it. I really could not do this. So what I did was that we'd come just to the first sitting of any period And then after the first sitting of any period, it was just too much, and I could do something much more useful, and so I went to learn Korean or helped in the kitchen because I could not stand it sitting there. Until the master came to sit with us and saw me going off when I was not supposed to go off during the walking period, and then when I came back for the next period, uh, I was told that I had two okchiro chamta. I always remembered the Korean. And so I looked in the dictionary because uh, my Korean was poor at the time, and it meant you must bear beyond strength. So I thought, I must bear beyond strength. And then I thought, well, They've been doing this for 800 years, and nobody died of it. (laughs) So possibly I won't die of it either. And that totally transformed the I cannot stand this anymore. And so I thought, okay, let's go. And it was very interesting because after that, I never missed anything. And I arrived the first of everybody. And it was okay. I mean, it was not easy. But I did not have that feeling anymore. I cannot stand this. And to me, it was fascinating. From, in a way, one day to the next, it went. It's like before I was grasping and thinking, this is too much, this is too much, I can't take this, I can't breathe, I'm going to... No, I can't, I can't, this is terrible, this is awful. And it was kind of like this huge things. When everybody else was sitting there happily, I just could not take it. And then just to hear, you, can, you must bear beyond strength, and just trying it, 
It's like, it's like there was this huge balloon and it totally, totally pricked it and it was gone. And I could easily do it. And I did not die of it. And it showed me again that when you grasp, you exaggerate. And th that's a problem with exaggeration. Is that our creative potential cannot do very much with abstraction. Our creative potential cannot do very much with... It can only deal with right now. One breath at a time. One moment at a time. And in a way, that's what you're showing. Every moment you're there, you're creatively engaging with it. And so it's to see as soon as we grasp, in a way, we make it so much bigger. And we have the feeling, I am these small things, and this thing is this huge thing. And I think the meditation shows that, yes, this is unpleasant. But it's not this huge thing. It's this thing here. And me, I am bigger than it. I think you have the reverse. I think when we release, when we degrasp, when we creatively engage, then you don't have the exaggeration. You don't have the amplification. And it's more, okay, this has happened. What can I do about this? How can I creatively engage with this? Now let's look at uh, this creative engagement versus grasping in practical terms. Because for me, this is not uh, a fancy idea. It's something very practical. And it's something to look in terms of our experience, in terms of our senses. So it's not something mystical. But it's just, for example, when we hear a sound. One moment we don't hear a sound. Next moment we hear it. So we come into contact with a sound. And so to me, that at that moment, that we have the potential in a way to awaken. We have the potential to not grasp. Because we have a very sticky quality. And so we hear something, we see something, we feel something, we think something. So the moment before we don't, and the moment after we do. So there is this contact and this feeling. So pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What do we do at this moment? Do we creatively engage? Or do we grasp, identify, solidify, amplify? So we hear a sound. When we were in Korea, uh, we were the ladies, the nuns, in a little room, in a little compound. Very cute, very quiet compound. And then our former rabbit decided to build himself a house in our compound, on the other side of the compound. Not, you know, like on the other side of twice his distance. Just when we started a three-month retreat, 
And it was a traditional house. So it was all done with hammer and sewing and, you know, all this. So we thought, but can we meditate? How can we meditate with this noise? I mean, it was bang, bang, shh. I mean, it was really, really noisy. And there was a four of us, kind of, you know, ten hours a day. What is this? <laughs> and, what, and I think we realized very quickly that if we grasped at it, it would be impossible. So we seen that each of us decided to creatively engage. And so in a way, we heard it like we heard the birds. It's very interesting. You sit in meditation... And you hear, tweet, tweet, if you, it's nice to be at Gaia House. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear, bang, 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 tap, 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 and you think, what's going on? Don't they know we are meditating? You know? And it's very interesting. I'm not saying one is not pleasant and the other unpleasant, but it's very interesting. They're just sounds, arising, passing away. Can we just be with the sound without grasping? To me, this is, in a way, on a retreat, we really have this opportunity to explore this. It's a little difficult in daily life. There are so many things happening. But here, it's kind of trying to notice. I hear the tweet-tweet. I hear the bueng-bueng. How can I creatively engage with both to the same degree? Can I just be in contact with it? It's the same with words. I mean, we're in silence, so we don't have so much to deal with this. But we, words, I mean, words, they are so ephemeral, so empty. Let's make a little uh, example. I look at you really nicely. <laughs> really nicely. I look at you and very benignly and very brightly, and I say, you are all enlightened. <laughs> Martin said we are enlightened. Great, 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 you know. You know. And now we, soon we can teach, and you know, oh, great, great, I am enlightened. Wow. Yes, I am enlightened. She said I am enlightened, it must be true. Or I looked at you a little seriously, little dour. <laughs> you are. Stupid. <laughs> she said, I'm stupid. Ah! She's stupid to say I'm stupid. Oh, how can she say this? She is a meditation teacher. Really? Oh, it's just a word. As soon as one word, they're both gone. They're really gone. I mean, a word is just a little sonorous wave which arise, stay, and go. And the only question in terms of us 
is that when we presented with a word, the question is, do I buy it or not? Is it about me or is it about the person who says the word? That to me is really creative engagement. Instead of like the word come is ah. And what is interesting with word is that we keep them. As I said before, you know, we tuck them here, we tuck them there, especially the nasty one. You know? <laughs> they said this. How could they say this? Oh, that was painful. Ooh. Yes, terrible. You know, I mean, five years ago, a year ago, a month ago, it's gone. We don't need to keep it. I mean, we can creatively engage with it. Do I need to say something about it? Do I need to avoid that person? I mean, there are many different ways to creatively engage. Or what we see, what we see also is interesting. I think that when we walk outside, we have a great opportunity to engage in creative engagement with seeing. Because we see something. We see something and generally contact, again, the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And very quickly, we want it or we don't want it. Ah, a little experiment here. That's a good one. I learned a lot from it when I used to be a house cleaner. You go in the bathroom and there is still something in the toilet bowl and it's not yours. <laughs> if it's yours, it's fine. If it's not yours, ah! And then you can shh, magnify. Very interesting. You see a form. It's a form. I mean, you can creative engagement, always flush it. <laughs> but it's interesting. You can, you know, three days later, you can still be thinking about it. <laughs> but I mean, it's gone. You know? Or when you see something beautiful, you know, you go, I mean, we have a beautiful garden. I mean, the coordinator and the people who help in the garden. They have created such a beautiful garden here. And so you, you see the flowers and you, oh, I want one of those, you know. I want one of those in my garden. How can I get it? I can't take it. Though I could if nobody saw me. I could possibly take it. I mean, it's interesting. You see these flowers. You know, what do you do? Do you just actually... Enjoy them in that moment. Of course, you can always grow them in your garden. But you see, the more you proliferate, the less you are with the beauty of the flower here and now. That's a problem with the proliferation. It takes you away from the contact right here, right now. And that's what I would play around with when you walk in the garden when you see a tree, when you see a flower, how can you really be with it, creatively engage with it, really see it? And I think that's also one of the beauty of a retreat, is that it really helps us to see more because we don't proliferate so much, we don't abstract so much. 
And so we can be with just what appears, what arises, what we come in contact in this moment. You also have smell. You know, we can uh, we move about the house, especially in the morning. Mmm, mm, smells good. Or we go, you know, we're queuing, queuing, and smells good. I hope there'll be some left for me. You know, and interesting. When we, we smell something, what do we do? Do we just smell it, enjoy it? Or in a way, do we proliferate with it? Or if we smell something bad, back to the bathroom with 60 people, and sometimes you go in the bathroom and it's, <laughs> I can't breathe. But again, if it's yours, it's fine. Very interesting. Very interesting. You see, what do we do with smell? Do we grasp? Do we creatively engage with them? We also have taste. Taste is, I mean, that's something you can do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can have you sit in silence. I know it's a bit awkward, eating in silence. But eating in silence really is an opportunity to creatively engage with taste and to see what happens when we eat. How, in a way, you are in contact with the food, you taste it. And generally, we have a quite immediate reaction. I like it. Mmm, I want more. You still have quite a lot on your plate. But you're already thinking, mm, I hope there is something left so I can have second or third serving. Very interesting. You barely start, you already want more. It's kind of like very quick, grasping. Doesn't mean you cannot enjoy it. But see that, see the movement to, I want more. And can you go back to, can I just enjoy each taste as it arise. Or you, you have the sight, you have the smell, and it looks good, it, it smells good, and then you put lots on your plate. And then you sit down, and then you taste it, and it really does not taste like you thought it would. <laughs> and then you think, how can I get rid of it? <laughs> without anybody seeing me wasting this food. It's interesting. How can I be with that? Sometimes I have problem with bitterness or with certain acidic taste, and it's very hard for me to... Bitterness I can kind of cope, but uh, acidic taste is very difficult for me to just be <laughs> equanimous, to just kind of eat it. It's not easy. So how can we creatively engage with the taste. We also have the sensations, and we have uh, talked a little about that. And with sensation, it's very interesting, because you, you're doing the, the, the meditation, the sitting, and I know it's not uh, easy all the time. But what is interesting with sensations, discomfort, is that actually according to our state of mind, we can be in a grasping mode, exaggerating mode, 
or we can be in a creatively engaged mode with the same discomfort and actually we'll be with it in a very different way. So we might have the, the discomfort and we kind of, you know, we have concentrated, have distracted and there is this pain and oh, it's terrible and uh, will I walk again and, you know, really, you know. <laughs> or you have the pain, it is painful, it's discomfortable, but you go inside it. Your experience is changing nature. It's pulsing. It's, and it's okay. I mean, you don't want to stay there forever, but it's a very different relationship. I remember once I was doing, I was teaching a retreat somewhere else and I had a really bad uh, sciatica attack. And so I do the walking and then I come back to sitting down and it was agony. It was pure agony. It was my leg was throbbing, was hot, was just really, really, really painful. But I had to sit there for 30 minutes because I had to, I was the one doing the, the clapper, keeping the time, and I could, not, I could not leave. And I realized if I grasp at this, I mean, the 30 minutes is going to feel like a year. And instead of that, I just went into it. I went inside the experience just as it arose as it came and went and changed and burnt and burst. And, and actually the time went very fast. I was amazed that actually I could do it. I could be with it. But it, creative engagement, as soon as I could walk off, I went to take some painkiller. So one does not stop the other. Then we have thoughts. And I think this is something the meditation helps us to see, that we come in contact with thoughts. One moment we don't have one, next we do. And we do the same. We grasp and identify with our thoughts. And we feel they are us. Instead of realizing we have a thought, a thought arises, we immediately, I am my thought. And generally we magnify, we exaggerate, we proliferate. Once there was this kind of wonderful story with uh, some years ago on a retreat. And there was this uh, person who had lots of uh, very bad nightmare. She had lots of depression and had lots of really, really bad nightmare where she kind of saw monsters and they were very real and it was really, really terrible. And so she tell me about all these nightmares and I'm really worried. Because I think, you know, if all the time she does a retreat, she has nightmares. I mean, she is not going to sleep very well and it's not so good. And then two days later, she comes beaming and she said to me, you know, I went to sleep last night I was lying down, going to sleep, and suddenly the monster arose. And I thought, it's not me. It's just a thought. It's just an image. And it just went. 
because she did not grasp at it, because she creatively engaged. It was like, it just vanished. And she had a wonderful sleep. So I'm not saying we can all the time do that, but I think it's very important to see. It's, it's, it's natural to grasp. It's natural to stick. But I think the meditation can help us to have more of a choice, to see that, oh, yeah, I could stick, I could grasp, but possibly I could also creatively engage. In this moment, with what arises, with my capacity, with my ability. And so that's what I would uh, suggest for the rest of our time together, to actually explore, to play with the different senses and the different kind of experience of how does it feel when we grasp? Not judging the grasping, but how does it feel? And how does it feel when I creatively engage? So that's what I wanted to say. Then I got two little notes. One note was about uh, suffering and the third noble truth. And actually, Stephen said tomorrow he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about suffering. He's going to talk about the third noble truth, which is cessation, which actually the third noble truth is not the cessation of suffering. It's actually the cessation of craving. But Stephen will explain that tomorrow. So actually, the third noble truth is what I have been talking about this evening. Then another question was more like a kind of a, about, uh, could you briefly explain how Korea, North and South has ended up as it has, despite giving birth to such a wonderful Buddhist practice? So I think we have to see that uh, what's happening uh, in Korea at the moment is actually very geopolitical and has a lot to do with history and a lot to do actually with the American and the Chinese and half as much with the Koreans. So I won't go into the history because it's just totally about history in the 1950s and what was happening with the American, with the Chinese, and what happened in Korea. But in terms of the Korean Buddhist practice, what is interesting to look at in terms of history is the fact that Buddhism was quite strong in Korea from the 6th century to the 12th century. And then after the 12th century, it was, take, it was kind of in a way repressed by Confucianist uh, kingdoms for more than 800 years or 700 years. And so in a way, Buddhism revived only at the turn of the 1900 and especially after 1950. So what is interesting is now you actually have a revival of Buddhism because before Buddhism was really kind of... Uh, Really, I mean, it continues. There still was things happening with it, but it was not officially supported. And because of that, that's what is interesting. 
because of that, I think uh, Korean Buddhism has an interesting kind of like, now it's changing because they're becoming more opulent, but as an easy carrying thing. You can carry this easily. They have little things you can carry easily. Things are quite small because I think they were in a poor state for many, many centuries. And so they had to make everything portable, very little ceremony, things very simplified. And now that they're becoming more opulent, things are becoming more complicated, and you get more ceremony and bigger things. But that's one of the things I loved when I was there in the 70s, before Buddhists became a little more opulent, that everything was very simplified, very simplified. And personally, I love that very much. So are there any questions or comments? Yeah. So with the nature of cultivation, even on those days when one is continually looking at the clock waiting for those 10 minutes to end or just do it whenever, always. Is that the basic message? I would say two things. I would say when you sit or when you walk or when you lie down or stand in meditation and when you endeavour to any degree to uh, concentrate and inquire, you are meditating. No, ma no matter what your state, if you have lots of thought, if you are sleepy, as long as you have the intention to do it, and time to time you come back to do it, I would say it's cultivation. But if we talk of meditation in daily life, then I think it depends. You see, if for whatever reason um, you have lots of difficulties and you, you feel very heavy, very weighed down, then I would say just sitting actually might not be very helpful. And then I would say maybe doing walking meditation would be better. So I think we have to be careful in terms of putting too much emphasis on the sitting. Because generally you have the idea of meditation, is sitting meditation. That, I think, is a little problematic, especially in daily life. Because it's kind of like a sacralization of the sitting posture. And generally it means sitting on a cushion, etc. But personally, I think you can sit on a chair, you can sit on an armchair. But also, I think we have to see in daily life that if you sit all day, if you're a therapist sitting all day or a secretary sitting all day, then I would say walking meditation might be better than sitting meditation. Because you are so static all day, it'd be good to do something which is more moving. And by walking meditation, do you mean around one room or could be in the fields or anything? Uh, walking meditation, walking slowly, walking fast, running, if that suits, where you can do it. You know, I mean, if it's snowing outside, <laughs> possibly doing it indoors, slowly. I think the speed is very much according to the space you have. If you don't have much space, I would say walk slowly indoors. But if you have a lot of space, you can walk at a good pace 
outdoors. So the pace doesn't matter. It's just the fact that you do it with the intention of being aware, being mindful, concentrating, inquiring. And also to remember, you can also do standing meditation. In that, you have lots of opportunity. When you go to the supermarket, you could, can do a lot of standing meditation, as we always are in the wrong queues. <laughs> and instead of grasping and exaggerating, proliferating, creative engagement, standing meditation, or lying down meditation. You see, you might not feel so well. You might feel a little tired. And then you can do lying down meditation. This is one easy way to meditate, is when when we go to bed at night, when we wake up in the morning, if we don't sleep well in the middle of the night, instead of worrying about sleeping, we can just think about resting and just being aware of the body as we lay there. Or in the middle of the day, we could lie down and just be aware or question whatever we decide to do. So personally, I would say, in terms of cultivation in daily life, I would encourage remembering the four postures. But also to see that you have formal meditation and you also have informal meditation. And that, I think, is also important, that meditation is not just about sitting or walking in a certain formal way with the breath or the question, but also in daily life, bringing the creative awareness, bringing the creative engagement. That's also cultivation, which is more an informal cultivation. Yeah. Today, Stephen was talking about how when the mind is still, to drop the question, what is this, has a different effect than to do it in any other circumstance. Is that, is that correct? Because two years ago, when, we, when I was in retreat with you, I, I picked up the question, what is this? And I often use it in daily life. But this morning, I became a little... What? That was Stephen's idea this morning. <laughs> and, and you see, you can look at the question in many different ways. And tomorrow I will bring a more pragmatic view of the question. That's why he said, you know, this morning he was presenting a certain aspect of the questioning. And then you can use it that way. I mean, the way it's described, you can use it that way. But it's not the only way to do it. I think, again, we have to be careful. There are many different ways to use a question. So tomorrow, I will spend, I will, in the instruction, I will look at the different way we can question and the different way we can use it, the different way to look at it. And I think we have to stop here so you can have a little time to walk and then we'll meet again for the final sitting.